Welcome to Our Kids, Our Schools, your compass in the world of local education hosted by Alexis Morgan, an experienced guide and advocate. This space offers insights designed to serve parents, teachers, administrators, school board members, and community stakeholders. Every episode is designed to equip you with the knowledge and tools to be an active participant. This podcast isn't just a dialogue. It's a movement, a movement that encourages collaboration to foster a thriving school community because together we can, we will make a difference. Well, it's so great to have you here both on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me for this conversation about education in Idaho. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay, so with me, I have Representative Galavis and Representative Mathias, and you both have a, you both currently are representatives for, um, in our Congress, now I can't even think of the We've been talking about all sorts of things and the words aren't coming. This is what happens when you're talking about other things first. So one of my favorite things to do actually is to say, will you introduce yourself? Because then I don't have to keep it in my head and to come out. And you know yourselves really well. So uh, Sonia, would you please tell us what your background is, where you serve, your seat, and how you are connected with the Idaho legislature? Sure. Yeah. Um, Sonia Galavis, I'm a representative House Seat A in District 16. So this is my first term, my second session. So I'm just a, f- a freshman legislator. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then what's your background professionally? So I'm a public school teacher. So this is year 20 for me in Idaho public schools. And I've taught in a few different districts, but currently I teach in the Boise School District. Awesome. And then I know that when you're in the legislative session, it's Representative Galavis. But when it's outside the, re- the legislative session, it's Dr. Galavis. I think that's cool, and I think it points to like the value that you bring to the legislature. What's your doctorate in? Thank you. So it's my doctorate was in STEM education and family involvement, specifically around STEM education. Um, but outside of the legislature, I'm usually just Miss G. Miss G. Students. I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And Chris, what's your background, and what do you do for the Idaho legislature? Yes. So my name is Chris Mathias. I represent District 19, which we are sitting in currently. I didn't even have to leave district to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am in my second term, so I'm in my fourth legislative session. Uh, and I serve on the education committee with Sonia. Um, I came to education uh, through the policy channels, not through the pedagogical classroom channels. I finished graduate school and I ended up at Boise State as the policy manager kind of in the world of how do you shepherd education policy through you know all the stakeholder dynamics. And then I did that for the State Board of Education as the chief academic officer where I was introduced to the legislature as a stakeholder in education, politics, and policy. I also later worked, and when I left the board office, I worked for the organization that builds and maintains the ISAT. And then I got elected to the legislature in 2020 during the pandemic. And my first session, 2021, right after the January 6th insurrection, was I was forged in fire. And so not only do all of the sessions seem to get more manageable for me, but now I've got Sonia to work with, and I just feel like I'm, I'm finding my legs. Awesome. I love it. And what I think is interesting to note for you is that when you came to Idaho after graduate school, that wasn't the first time that you've been here. You, right? Because you came to Boise State for your undergraduate. Isn't that right? Correct. I got out of the Coast Guard in the year 2000 and brought my GI Bill benefits to uh, to Idaho. 
Uh, I wasn't sure exactly where in Idaho was I was going to go. I checked out all of the schools, but I instantly fell in love with Boise, which I call a city for country kids. Uh, yeah. It was also the first and only time in my life, it had never happened before then, and it's never happened since, where I sat down. I was visiting the public library, and I sat down and I read a whole book in one sitting. And for me, that was a sign. For someone that didn't like to read until I was in my 20s, to me, that was a sign that this is a place to learn and to grow and, and, and to do all of that stuff. And so I ended up at Boise State, finished my undergraduate career, went back east for graduate school, but came back even before I was finished. I came back. Yeah, I love that. And for graduate school, I, this is, again, I think it's valuable to note, especially when we're talking about education, that you've got a, you have a, a law degree and a PhD. Isn't that correct? Correct. I have a law degree, uh, though I've never taken a bar exam. I've never practiced law. I also have a PhD in law and public policy. I love the legislative process. I love the role that lawmakers play in the law. Uh, I was a law clerk for a U.S. Senator for a short period, and that was really my entree to and my where my passion for the lawmaking process came from. And so I really enjoy uh, doing this. But it's also nice to be able to put your credentials and your academic background to direct application in what you do every day. And so my PhD is in law and public policy. Uh, my dissertation was about incident management at the state level in Idaho and Massachusetts. And so I don't necessarily draw down on that subject matter expertise that much, but the process of doing due diligence, of doing research, of listening to lots of people, it was a qualitative, you know, interview-based dissertation. And so I, I, all, the, all the hard skills uh, I still use every day, and I, I'm thrilled. When I was, uh, when I met with you in December and you were telling me about your background and you mentioned your PhD, I was like, whoa, I'm going for a PhD in public policy and administration. And then you said, I love being a legislator because I get to take all of those things that I learned about and put them into practice. And I just kind of felt like you were speaking my nerd language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I mm -hmm. loved it. I thought it was really great. And you know, that our legislators come with all sorts of different backgrounds and the backgrounds that you guys come with really play to what you do. I mean, you serve on several different committees, but you serve on the House Education Committee. Um, and so that to me, just like there's just so much value there. I really, I really appreciate that a ton. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to just note, because I have a previous podcast about um, education in Idaho and all of the different components of the different systems. And so Matt, you had mentioned that you worked in the office of the Board of Education, which is different than the State Board of Education. So will you tell, will you just kind of talk about the difference a little bit? Because I just think there's so much value in differentiating like what the board, of, what the office of the Board of Education does. Sure. Uh, so across State Street from the Idaho Capitol Building, just north of the Capitol Building is the Len B. Jordan Building, or as we insiders call it, LBJ. And on the third floor of LBJ is the State Board of Education, and more specifically, the Office of the State Board of Education. And on the second floor is the State Department of Education. There are some other agencies there. But the Office of the State Board of Education is the staff that works for the Executive Director of the Office of the State Board of Education. And the Executive Director is the only employee of the State Board of Education. So the governor makes the appointments to the State Board, and they have one employee that they hire. And that is the Executive Director. His name is Matt Freeman currently. Matt Freeman's job is to hire all of the staff that populate the office of the State Board of Education. Our dynamic and governance structure in Idaho is unique because Idaho is the only, though I think Rhode Island might be similar, but it is the only state where the SEA, the State Education Agency, 
overseas, not just K-12 education, but also higher education as well. And I think there are some pros and cons to that. But because we also have a State Department of Education, a much larger agency that oversees the day-to-day -day operations of K-12 education, the Office of the State Board of Education tends to focus most of its time on higher education, governance, regulation, coordination, collaboration, things like that. And so I was the Chief Academic Officer for the Office of the State Board of Education, and my job consisted primarily of two things. One, reviewing um, essentially college degrees and programs, making sure that, that proposals are meeting board policy and protocol and expectations, and then also enforcing the policies, the academic policies of the State Board of Education. So for example, if a student files a complaint against a faculty member at Boise State and they don't like the university's response, they will appeal it all the way up through the university structure. But if they don't even like that decision, then they are allowed to appeal to the State Board of Education. And those appeals would come to me and I would be the initial kind of merit investigator and then make determinations about whether this met the board's criteria for whether they should get involved at the appellate level. And so it's a very interesting job um, as all jobs in education in Idaho are today. Yeah. And thank you for that. And one of the one of the things that I noted as I was reading and learning about the Board of Education was that, as you pointed out, they're all appointed by the governor, except the superintendent of public instruction. She sits on that board as well. Correct. She's elected. The people of Idaho get to elect that position. And then the Board of Education, they're the ones taking laws that the legislators make and turning them into policy. Is that kind of how you understand it too? I mean, that's how I was reading it. Yeah, though there are also sections of code that expressly call out the State Department of Education. So the State Department of Education also does that. But because the State Board of Education is the state education agency, which is a federal designation for all kinds of legal reasons, um, they certainly have general oversight over, you know, whether the State Department of Education rules and, and laws are, are being promulgated correctly. And so they might not be actively involved in all of that, but they definitely have the responsibility to make sure it's being done properly and well. Awesome. So, so great. Okay. Chris, how long were you there? I don't know that I, I served that. the State Board of Education for just over three years. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. All right. So we're going to hop into what you guys do at the legislature. So you you both serve on the House Ed Committee, but what other, I mean, that's not the only committee that you serve on. What other committees do you serve on? I'm also on local government and resources. And what do those do? So resources and conservation looks at um, rules and policy related to Ag, there is an ag committee as well, but also fish and game, um, wildlife, um, different rules that affect our public lands, um, grizzly and water. wolf yeah. legislation, um, water, yeah, and water is a hot topic, of course. And then mm -hmm. local government is local government, all things that affect your cities. So, what kind, so like what would be something that you would see in local government on that committee? Do you have? Um, so some things that we've seen, it's it's one of the slower committees to wake up, I feel like, during the session. Um, you know, we've only met once so far, and that's just waiting for some RSs to come through or bills to come through. But something that we saw last year, you know, is um, suggested policy surrounding um, billboards and signage within cities. There's one that was controversial about trees and you know the ability to be able to see a sign and if a tree is in a way does the tree have to come down to you know to to have appropriate view um other things surrounding um 
you know, local, we saw some issues of water in in our local government, but um, that's one that I wanted to be a part of so I could learn more and understand how state law impacts local cities and counties. Mm-hmm. I remember those stories last year about water and reading about them in the paper. And I love that you were on that committee and wanted to be there to learn more about mm-hmm. how this works too. That's so awesome and share your voice. Okay, Chris, what, what committees are you on? So I serve on House Education Committee, which meets every morning, uh, but then the afternoon committees rotate odd and even days. So uh, I also serve on the House Judiciary Rules and Administration Committee, or as we just call it in the building, Jude and Rules. Uh, and I also serve on the Agricultural Affairs Committee, which I have served on. It's the only committee I've served on throughout my entire legislative career. That's the constant. That's the constant. So did you join the House Ed when Sonia started her freshman year then? I did. I I was I was not qualified or competent enough to be there as a freshman, unlike Sonia. So I had to earn <laughs> my chops true. first, and then I got there <laughs> yeah, in my second term. It. But it's a it's a very desirous committee for Democrats, given our commitment to public education. And so there's always kind of a, a wait list to get on it. Right. And that is the committee. I mean, when we're talking about education in Idaho, and you guys are going to know these numbers better than me, but isn't it about 60% of the state budget goes towards education, roughly? Including post, post-secondary. Mm-hmm. Includes, okay, so that includes K through college. Mm-hmm. 60% of the state budget is going towards education. So, I mean, it's fair to say that the, that the education committees are the ones that people are mostly watching because that's where our bulk of the money is going. Do you guys ever feel the pressure of being on that committee? I, I guess the pressure I feel is just the intensity of the impact of what we do there. Um, because it's my day job as well, I see how policy is can immediately impact not only my students, but my colleagues, the profession. So that's why I was drawn to that space, just because I, I live it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Do you feel that? I don't feel... If I do feel pressure, I feel like I, I deal with it a different way. I mean, I don't shy... I mean, that's how coal is turned into diamonds, right? Through pressure. So mm-hmm. it's not something I shy away from. Mm-hmm. Um, but exactly like Sonia said, I think making sure that you are doing your due diligence and you're making as an informed decision as a possible can be a little stressful because, you know, what if you miss something? What if I miss something and Mm -hmm. next year we find out that that small oversight had disastrous consequences for a certain subset of the population or certain types of schools? Um, but I will say having Sonia sit next to me every day is, 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 is comforting and it's encouraging and empowering because Unlike her, I only bring like my personal experience as a student and education policy and politics to this discussion. And while she's getting all of that now, she also brings 20 years of pedagogical experience, which is something that very few people uh, in education politics and certainly in the legislature have. And it's very, um, it's an important perspective. It's an essential perspective. And I think it brings a lot of quality to our work. And I'm now I'm commandeering her experience it's our work now because we do a lot of this together and it's it's really nice yeah and you are an educator on the committee and isn't chairwoman yamamoto doesn't she also have background in education Mm -hmm. and are you the two that have background in education are there other ones that serve on the house ed committee that also have education background we're lucky to where we have a um a handful of members who are connected with education um representative nelson um he was a music teacher, right? A music teacher. And then also Representative Garners uh, sat on a school board. 
Uh, who else, Chris? Well, Jack was also a, a, a board member at the College of Southern right. Idaho for many years. And then I don't know what Greg Lanting from Twin Falls taught, oh, but before right. he got in, then he, I know he was an administrator. He principal. Went to, yeah. Middle school principal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. That's great. And there's, mm-hmm. yeah, I like that. I didn't even realize there was that much perspective on there. That's great. That, that is great. I really appreciate that. And I think it would explain why when you look at that committee's proceedings, you tend to get not just, I wouldn't say too many questions, but you get an above average amount of questions and they're, and they're never got you questions. Mm-hmm. They're always, I'm trying to reconcile the words in this bill with my own knowledge and experience help me understand. And I think that's one of the reasons that bills come out of, that come out of house education by and large are pretty thoughtful and, and well-drafted. So let's talk about a bill because when, I, when I'm talking to people about how bills are coming out of committee and all these different things, it's not necessarily common knowledge, even though we all learned about it in high school. That was a really long time ago. And there's just, there's language that's used. So will you guys talk to me about how a bill, how a bill starts, when people can testify, you know, what how they can get involved in that way? Um, let's just talk about that for a minute, because I think there's a lot of value in it. So we all have ideas. Some of our ideas come from our own personal experience. Some ideas come from outside organizations asking us to run bills. And so um, leading up to the legislative session is when those ideas are supposed to be hardened and clarified. And, you know, is it addressing a problem? What do my stakeholders think? I think there's a lot of work that goes into bills before session. Um, But let's say you've done all of that and you decide that there's something I want to pursue. There's a bill I want to pursue. Here's the kind of the formal process. So the session starts. And the first thing you do is you would take your idea to uh, the LSO drafting attorney's office. So LSO, Legislative Services Office, consists of all kinds of divisions, admin, budget, and analysis. They also have the drafting attorney's division. So you would take uh, your bill idea to them. I think good legislators will sit down and be open to feedback from the drafting attorney. So if they have feedback that you want to make, you can incorporate it. But then let's say again, you get your bill idea to where you want it. You would take them and ask them to RS. RS stands for routing slip. So essentially what you are doing is you are taking your idea off your computer and you are turning it into an official artifact of the legislature. It's official, but it's still not a public document, which is why you the, the public cannot see RSs. RSs uh, have, you know, I think a five-digit number attached, and then uh, they get introduced. If you're lucky, they get introduced in a committee. And when an RS comes to a committee, the committee's only decision at the time is to decide whether to print it and make it a real bill. So is this bill addressing a I mean, these are the things that I presume we are asking ourselves. Does this bill address a problem? Is it is it written well enough that we're not going to uncover, you know, glaring technical errors during a full hearing? Things like that. If it gets printed, it gets a bill number. And once it has a bill number, it gets read across the desk on the House floor in the next morning. And it's then that it will get assigned to a committee. Usually it gets assigned to the same committee that printed it, but occasionally, a little more than that frequently, it will get sent to a different committee for the full hearing. So once it has a full hearing, that is the first chance that the public has to testify. And when you're saying, I'm going to interrupt, when you say a full hearing, you're talking about in a committee. Mm -hmm. And does that have to have a sponsor in that committee? I mean, a lot of times, right, we're seeing, sometimes I see uh, representatives, if we're talking about the House, representatives come in and present a bill, but they're not actually in the committee. Great question. Great question. So in order for a bill to get a full hearing, it does not have to have a sponsor on the committee. The bill sponsor themselves will come to our committee and present it. Um, 
I say full hearing because during the print hearing, when we're deciding whether the, to, to give the RS a bill number, we're allowed to ask a couple of questions, but it's not a full hearing. We don't get to ask all of our questions. Uh, nobody from the public can testify. It's, at that point, nobody from the public has even seen it yet, so they wouldn't even know what to say about it. Um, but once it has a full hearing, which is called the first reading on our reading calendar, that's how many times the legislature or a committee gets to consider a bill. The first hearing, uh, the full hearing is on the first reading calendar, and that's when a committee will give it a full hearing. The sponsor will present it, answer some initial questions. Anyone who wants to testify will have the chance. Um, the, the bill sponsor will close out and answer any final questions. Then the bill is what the chair will call before the committee. And when it's before the committee, the committee can do what it, with it what it wants. 99% of the time, they will make a motion to proceed in some fashion. They will move. A common one is to send it to the floor with a due pass recommendation. I was just in a meeting the other day. Um, the, the mandatory minimums for fentanyl bill that came out of judiciary and rules last week got sent to the floor in a rare move with no recommendation. Uh, sometimes there'll be a motion to hold it in committee, which means the committee doesn't really like the bill. Um, sometimes uh, the committee will send it to the amending order, which is general orders on our reading calendar. And that is a, is a section of the reading calendar. All the bills on the, re on the general orders or the amending order, as we call it, they are all going to go through a process where people are allowed to propose amendments. And, and when we go into, quote, general orders, the whole legislature will get to vote yes or no on whether to accept those amendments. And if we accept those amendments, it will get engrossed into the bill and come back to the legislature as a whole. And then we get to decide and debate on the bill as a whole. So I think we're about three quarters of the way through the process now. And so so the the bill will come out of committee. It'll go on the second reading calendar and the House will see it up on the second reading calendar, which means it will get right across the desk again, which is another kind of notification to the legislature. If you have questions about this bill, now is your time to, to, to find out what the answers to those questions are, because when it comes on to the third reading calendar, that is when it comes up for debate and that is when we get to vote. Okay. So a bill comes on to the third reading calendar. We will we will debate it. We will vote on it. If it passes, sit with a simple majority, which in the House of Representatives, it just needs 36 votes to pass. Uh, it will get sent. It will get transmitted across the rotunda to the Senate, and it will go through almost the exact mm -hmm. same process minus the RS over on the Senate. The bill will go to the, the germane committee on the. So if it's an education bill, it will probably go to Senate education. If Senate education passes it with a due pass, it'll go to the whole Senate. If the whole Senate passes it, it will go to the governor's office for his consideration. And then the governor can approve or veto at that point. Correct. Uh, he almost always approves. Um, and there's two ways to approve. He can either put a signature on it uh, or he can just let the five days lapse after he takes possession of it. And if he doesn't sign it, it becomes law kind of through his tacit endorsement. Failure and, to act. Okay. And then if he vetoes it, what does that mean? If he vetoes it, he, he will not just veto it, but he'll explain why he's vetoing it. And then it will get sent back to the originating body. So if it was a House bill he vetoed, it will get sent back to the House. And we will get to decide whether we want to overturn his veto or sustain his veto. And I know I should know this off the top of my head, but since it doesn't happen that often, I don't know. I think to overturn a veto requires... Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Thank mm -hmm. you, yeah. Uh, if we decide we do want to overturn the veto, then that decision will get transmitted to the Senate and they will also make the same decision. If they decide to overturn the veto, then the veto is overturned. So it requires both houses to be able to overturn the it, governor's veto. It does. Mm -hmm. Okay. It does. That is a really, thank you. That was a yeah, really good welcome. explanation. Bravo. You're, thanks. You're welcome. And, you know, <laughs> I would just add, because this is something I tell people a lot, the point 
at which the public has the greatest ability to influence the outcome and trajectory of a bill is when it is at its full hearing in the committee. So every bill is gonna get a full hearing in two committees. Those are the best times mm -hmm. and leading up to the full hearing, those are the best times to convince, persuade, nudge, complain, support, whatever your inclination is. And how do people do that? How do they how do they get involved to do that? Because I know there are people who sit and read the newspaper and think, I wanna get involved, but sure. I don't know how to do that. Sony, how do they do that? So if if you want to participate in the committee hearing, you can, you know, come down, physically come down and be able to testify there in committee. But um, I was going to ask, Chris, do you know when it start when remote testimony started? Was that during your session because of yeah. your first session? Remote virtual testimony was a novelty before the pandemic. The pandemic and the, the, the federal money that came in specifically for technological enhancements to to facilitate remote test and virtual testimony. That's when all of the committees adopted it. Uh, I think some of them utilized it in good faith and others just kind of bumped along knowing they had to do it. I think some of the committees have gotten rid of virtual testimony because the chairs just didn't like it. And some of the committees, I think, still employ it in, with good fidelity. Yeah. So in House Ed, just this last week, you know, we had several people testify via virtual means. And so that's, I like it because it allows more Idahoans to be able to weigh in no matter where they are. Um, and especially those when I think about my you know, public school colleagues around the state where they can join from Post Falls or Idaho Falls or what, you know, whatever it might be. So you can have testimony. You can also submit written testimony that goes as public record as, as well. Um, other ways to get involved are contacting legislators directly, you know, and I know Idaho PTA pings, you know, your members to be able to reach out to your elected officials directly. You know, some, sometimes that's, effective and some you know we get depending on the day 300 plus emails a day sometimes so if you can come down during testimony or you know submit uh, official testimony for for the record that's helpful but anytime you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your legislator is also great I when I'm talking with you know, my teacher colleagues around the state, I often encourage them to reach out outside of session to develop a relationship so they know the name and they're considered a resource on, on the topic of education. And, you know, as I was listening to Chris talk about, you know, how a bill becomes a law and he was saying what a good legislator will do, you know, as they're approaching, you know, taking a topic or a concern or trying to solve a problem, you know, and making it into an RS, I would also include that the the legislators that I see that um, are the most thoughtful also reach out to stakeholders before they put pen to paper. So if you have this idea or you've heard of a problem or a constituent has come to you with a concern that you want to help with, it's, well, who will this impact? You know, who, who gets to execute this policy? Um, who should have a say? around this subject and so i always appreciate um, the model that chris sets for me as a as a newer legislator and that i'm trying to follow as well that go to everyone get all voices included in policy and hopefully that makes it more thoughtful and um, a better bill i agree i i remember when i was serving as a school board member and the superintendent when different components would come in front of us that he would anticipate the type of people that it that our policy would impact and he would have them in the room right. so that we could ask our questions because 
as a board, that was our priority. It's going to impact these people. We need to hear from them. So I really appreciate your point about including the stakeholders who, one, are the experts in the in the scenario, but also they're the ones that are going to be impacted by it as well. And what's interesting to me, and that brings up this idea that I'm actually learning in school, um, that, that we've um, addressed in school last semester was this idea that that oftentimes people think that legislators and public administrators, if public administrators are the experts in what they do, and then legis- legislators that are lawmakers, some people really feel like that line shouldn't be crossed at all, that there shouldn't be any any legislators going over and asking the uh, public administrators because the legislators are the ones making the law. It was kind of interesting. And I see that sometimes, though. I see that sometimes by legislators where they're not going over and asking the experts, the experts, the people that we pay who are doing these jobs on a regular basis, how will this impact what you do and how you carry out your role? Um, and I think that that collaboration is so needed, as you mentioned, to to come – they, they um, I read an article that called it the purple zone, that when if you had, you know, your two colors, red and blue, and they're side by side, but they need to overlap because we have to work together. Those are the best kinds of policies that are made, I think, and the most effective ones when we come together and work together on the issues and share those perspectives that are vital for helping make our state a good state, you know, and what we're doing. So thanks for bringing that up. That's, Yeah. Gold. That's gold, Sonia. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you guys, okay, so you guys also have great resources on your websites, and I wanted to make sure you pointed those out because um, I think that I, I have been talking with some different people around the state, and especially the people who don't just live here in the Treasure Valley, who maybe feel like, oh, the capital's right over there. But there are some, you guys have some really good resources to just track things. Would you please share those? Sure. So, my legislative tracker focuses on education. I wish I could track every every bill because there's a, a lot of interesting bills and things that peripherally, you know, would impact the, the families that I teach. But I look at Senate Ed and House Ed, particular the bills that come out of there, and I just try to help my constituents and anyone coming to my site to know where it is and who to contact. And then, you know, I give the uh, hyperlink everything for them so the if they want to contact the committee it's their form if it they need to contact their own legislator when it's going to the floor in either chamber it's there for them and I give them kind of my thoughts on it because sometimes when you summarize a bill you know you think like what does this actually mean like what will the impact be and so I give my thoughts and if I'm in favor or against it and that's on your website, mm-hmm. soniagalavis.com. Yep. And it's called Eyes on Education. Correct. And I was just on your website. And one of the things that I really liked about it was that you had it separated. I could be, I'm remembering this from last night. But you had it separated out by committees. And then you also had where it was in the mm-hmm. process. And and if action needed to be taken or if you recommended action or just following it. I mean, it was broken down. Like the user ease was so amazing in just reading it. I really appreciated that. Thank you. That was the whole point is to try to make it as transparent as possible. You know, and Chris alluded to something earlier that sometimes bills are finding homes and other committees now. And so we've seen that quite a bit this year. And so education related bills are now going to state affairs or rev and tax or they're, they're going all around. So I'm having a good time tracking them throughout the house. <laughs> I bet. And Chris, what about yours? What's your resource? 
Yeah, so I have a couple of resources and mine are less focused on the subject matter of a particular policy domain like education and mine are more focused on equipping citizens to engage in the process. So I have two, kind of two main buckets. I think my first one is I do a Monday morning legislative preview because what I found when I got elected to the legislature was that that the legislators were almost all doing backwards looking summaries of the week. They were writing it at the end of the week and so it wouldn't go out till Saturday or Sunday. And on by Sunday, especially in my district, District 19, which is a district we're in downtown Boise, Foothills, North End, you know, a lot of my constituents want to get involved and my newsletter wasn't helping them. They're like, that's great that that happened last week, but what can I do this week? And so my second year, I started kind of beta testing this idea of trying to figure out how do you distill down all of the agendas and the reading calendars into what you think are going to be the most noteworthy upcoming events of the next week. And so we do a Monday morning legislative preview. So that's that's probably the most visited tool on my website and people can sign up if they want to receive it in their email. The other, um, you know, comparable to Sonia's tool is a, a tracker, but it's built more around kind of the big noteworthy bills that I know people are talking about and I know they're going to want to get involved. And so it's built very much the same way. Uh, there's this bill coming through, you know, health and welfare to, you know, reinstate the, the maternal mortality review board, for example. That is a very big deal in my district. I have a lot of physicians. I have a lot of women. I have a lot of women that are paying attention. I have a lot of fathers that are paying attention. And they have been asking about this all year since we disbanded last year. And so, you know, if you go to my tracker, and I should mention that the only bills in my tracker are bills that I talk about in my Monday morning ledge preview. So there's nothing new in there. So if I talk about it in my video, it's in my tracker. But if you go to the tracker, you will learn what is the bill number? What does the bill sponsor say that it's intended to do? What do I think its potential impacts are? What committee is it in? Or if it's out of committee, is it in on the House floor? What reading calendar is it on? If you want to take action, given where it's at in the process, who should you contact? Um, because there's a big difference between if it's in committee, you know, and your legislator is not on that committee. Contacting your legislator has, has no material impact really on the outcome. So letting people know who you should contact given where things are. Uh, and then all the other information, links to the bill if you want to read it. Um, sometimes uh, we will add, you know, uh, newspaper articles and other artifacts that are germane to the, the bill. Really designed to just empower people to follow through on their desire to engage civically and just give them what we can give them. And it's constantly, we're constantly, my team and I are constantly trying to improve it. So I love it when people call me and say, this is great, or this is terrible, or why don't you do this, or why don't you do that? Because that allows us to engage in that cycle of continuous improvement. And again, all of this is designed just to help people engage in the process. Because the more people that engage in the process, the better our bills are. And I'm not saying, you know, the more conservative or liberal they are. I'm just saying the better they are, the more chance we have to mitigate against foreseeable risk, the more chance we have to make sure that, you know, changing a definition in this section of code is not going to have an adverse impact on, you know, its use in this section of code. Just the more people that are involved, the better off we will all be. Agreed. And that's on Matthias for Idaho? Dot com. Dot com. Mm -hmm. yep. And then also if people are, I know it's on Instagram because I'm following the stuff on Instagram. I see it Monday mornings. Are you on any other social media thing? We're on Matthias for Idaho is on with the exception of TikTok, which is a conversation that we're constantly having, but we have our own YouTube channel where you can watch the videos, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all, all there all the time. Uh, and my team and I are, are, you know, committed to communicating through all, you know, viable channels, because we know, you know, this is not, you know, 
this is not the 20th century anymore where everyone gets their news from the same six sources. People are getting it from mm -hmm. all over the place. And I think that's try to meet people where they're at. Yeah, I love that. And Sony, you're also on social media too. I just want to note that, that. I know that you're on Instagram. Are you are you other places too? Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, um, and Twitter. And so one thing that Chris's site and my site, we both do, we try to curate all the links for folks that people will need, you know, try to make it a one-stop shop so you're not having to navigate two or three different websites to be able to read bills and get contact information and stream a committee hearing or the floor session. So both of our websites link that for any viewer. And I should probably add, I totally omitted what my personal favorite tool at MatthiasFridaho.com is inside of our legislative action portal. So inside of our legislative action portal, we have the Monday morning video, we have the bill tracker, we have the do's and don'ts of testifying if you want to testify. Mm -hmm. We have the links to how to sign up if you want to participate virtually. We have a five-step guide for people who might not be familiar with testifying. You know, this is step one, step two, step three. But the thing that I use the most personally is our watch live page, MatthiasFridaho.com slash watch. Because those people who have experience trying to watch the legislature virtually know that it can be burdensome to first go to the legislative services page to find the committee and their agenda. And then once you do that, you have to go to Idaho Public Television in session to find the right room that that committee meets in to find the live stream. And what my team and I have done is 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 integrate that all into one page. So if you want to watch the House and Senate debate at the same time, you can. And all of the committee rooms are, are mapped directly to the committee itself. And so it's easy to find the agenda. It's easy to find the link. It's easy to find everything you need to to kind of, you know, keep an eye on us from afar. I can personally attest to how challenging it is to navigate the legislative uh, website because last year someone said, hey, you should watch this thing. And I said, okay, I'll go do that. And I went online and I mean, I've been working with the internet for a while and, <laughs> and felt like I'm pretty savvy enough. And I got to the website and could not figure it out and had to make a phone call to the help desk down there. And she walked me through how to get there. And I just kindly said, this is a lot of steps. 13 steps later. Yeah, this is a lot of steps. It's not It's not intuitive. It's not. Um, and so now I know how to do it because I've clunkily you know, done mm -hmm. it several times. But for someone who is interested in something, this thing right now that I'm like seeing on the news or watching and you know, read in the newspaper and I want to go watch, it's not easy. So I love mm -hmm. that you have that resource there. That's important. Yes. You mentioned the, the newspapers. I think another reason that these tools are very important is because if you only get your information through the news, it's easy to assume this kind of steady equilibrium of productivity because there's only so many reporters in the press corps and they can only write so many articles. So they're writing as many as they can today, but they're also at the end of March, they're going to be writing as many as they can at the end of the March, even though there's a lot more bills, a lot more debates, a lot more controversy. But you wouldn't know if you're only reading the news. And so being able to go into the legislate, legislative sites as a primary source is really important for a lot of people. Agreed. OK, so let's talk about let's talk about the legislature right now and things that you guys are experiencing and are like anticipating. So what are your observations regarding education this legislative session? Like let's dive into some of these topics as much as you want to. There's no pressure here to, but sure. I'd love to hear your opinion on different things. I'd love to hear Sonia's opinion too. <laughs> I always do. Chris knows my opinion. Uh, I mean, one thing that we've been 
anxiously awaiting is the governor's proposal come to fruition through a bill regarding school facilities, right? So when we heard his proposal talking about a $2 billion investment in school facilities, Chris and I know all too well of the incredible need on deferred maintenance and upkeep and new construction across the state. So we're really excited to see what that looks like. And of course, all the behind the scenes um, collaboration and, and, you know, even deals being made of how you bring something like that forward. Um, A lot of people want to have their hands in it. And so we will look forward to the bill actually landing so we can see what the final execution of that is. And as you know, as Chris walked you through the whole process, it still has a ways to ways to go. But we're told that that should be landing this next week, early next week. So we're excited to to see that um, because working in buildings, you know, I've worked in several different districts and I've worked in historic buildings that are held together by bubble gum, I swear, you know, so I, I know the need of facility improvement, but it's also there's some nuance behind it, too, because if you put this large you know, investment of money across the state, it's its hard to believe, but $2 billion over 10 years, if that's the case, if we're able to have that, um, it still will not provide the funds for a lot of new construction, maybe, you know, maybe a, sm- a smaller school and just what the cost of um, building is now. So it, it, it will be this delicate balance of how are we going to enable schools to handle growth and new construction um, you know, the, the way we currently get that funding is through bonds, right? Is through bond levy, which also have a two thirds threshold and the majority of our bonds fail across the state. So we continue to see schools in the news like salmon, like salmon that has real imminent hazards and threats happening in their school right now. And they can't pass a bond and they're running it again. I mean, they've run a bond over 10 times at, at this point. And so making sure we have provisions for our, our neediest communities, especially our communities that have low property value, high unemployment, things like that, that, that is part of that equation of how they pay back a bond. So I'm looking for that as well as how are we addressing deferred maintenance and upkeep capital projects, you know, new roofs, HVAC systems, things like that. So all of that goes into play um, because we have you know, 115 school districts. And then when you add charters as LEAs on top of it, we're getting close to 200. So there's a lot of buildings that are are in play. Um, And it's a priority to keep our schools safe, our children safe. Um, And then but then also be able to address growth and and how to meet that need as well. So that'll be interesting. Um, You know, and another one that we are watching closely is the, the new way uh, vouchers are going to be packaged this year through a tax credit. And so that was um, a, a new approach, I feel like, to put a, a lot of emphasis into a tax credit to be able to divert public funds for the use of uh, private school. So that hasn't appeared yet. We're still watching for it. Um, but that's something that we stand vigilant because we understand what the budgetary needs are for schools currently. Um, the the one that's sort of looming in the wings is $50 million projected to be able to give $5,000 and $10,000 tax credits. So we've seen across the country, whether it's in the shape of, you know, in the form of a voucher itself or an education savings account or a tax credit, it goes to folks who already send 
their kids to private school. And so I don't know that how that can be touted as school choice. Um, and Idaho is the majority of Idaho is rural, rural and then remote Idaho, which when you look at private school options, it's centralized in our urban areas. So I don't know what's how that promotes school choice when you're having taxpayers in Camas County, you know, um, diffuse the cost of those in Boise sending their kids to Bishop Kelly. So that I pay close attention to. So those are two big ones. I'll let Chris talk about any other ones. And before you go, Chris, I want to note that, um, and I just, I did just hear this and you might have a different number, but I was talking to the super superintendent Critchfield and she noted that 70% of our Idaho schools are rural. Mm-hmm. And that's significant when you're talking about vouchers. And, you know, and vouchers are something that, as you mentioned, divert money away from the public funds that would be given out to education. And one of the things that I've observed through the years, I heard this um, from someone down in Nevada actually years ago when they started using vouchers in their state, she noted that their state now is a mess with money that they don't have enough for all of the different things that they have that what i've seen are that states that use this voucher system to divert money away from public education are really hurting financially and they're just in a lot of money Mm problems they just have like in the most simplest way to say it they just have a lot of money problems they do and i know a lot of people say oh that's not true because they'll look, you know, surface level at the budget, but the dirty little secret in all of the states where we see this Nevada, Arizona, Indiana is they all have very specific revenue streams attached to a vice. Nevada is funding it through marijuana and recreational use marijuana. Arizona is funding it through recreational use marijuana. Indiana is funding it through increased gambling receipts. So all of these states have had to figure out if they're going to pay for these programs, they're going to have to figure out new ways to pay for it and they tend to be using vices to pay for it and that's not something that i want and it's not something i see this legislature passing so i feel like that needs to be part of the conversation as we're talking about sending public dollars to private schools and would you be more specific when you mean vices to fund it what does that mean yeah vice is kind of a catch-all term that we use in the legislature to talk about the things that people do that aren't really that good for you gambling marijuana alcohol cigarettes things like that So if, so I'm just going to, but like if something like this happened and, or like down in Nevada or whatever, then they had to legalize marijuana first to be able to then use that as a revenue source to be able to pay for something. I mean, that idea, is that kind of like what you're, right? And I certainly don't know if, if, if adult use marijuana came online first or if it was part of, but what we see in hindsight is that they've had, they've become increasingly reliant on that revenue stream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't have that. No. And it, what it does is it creates two systems of funding for schools, right? You have your, you know, your traditional, your brick and mortar, your public schools. And then if you allow vouchers to come into, you know, into the system, then you also have to find a funding source to, you know, to be able to sustain vouchers or educational savings, you know, accounts or the tax credit. You know, one thing that I've heard is, well, that wouldn't happen here because the tax credit proposal has a cap on it. Well, every state, when they started, it started with a cap. You know, Arizona's experimental, you know, with voucher, it started with a million dollars. Let's just see how it goes. And now it's projected to be close to 300 million. So they all start small. 
but that's, you know, the proverbial camel's nose in a tent. We just, we're going to do everything we can to stop it. And I think it's important to note that in the Idaho Constitution, it prohibits this, right? Like, what, is that, what exactly does it say in the Idaho Constitution about at public education? I actually don't know the... Do you know the exact Yeah, well, there's two, there's two pieces of the conversation or the Constitution that are germane to this conversation. The first is Article 5, Section 1 through 4 that deals with the legislature's obligation to maintain a free, thorough school of public education because yeah. the founders of the state knew, just like Thomas Jefferson and the founders of the country knew, that having some minimal level of formal education generally accessible to the public is in all of our best interest for reasons that we don't need to get into. But the other piece of the, of the of the Constitution is, sorry, Article 5, um, the Blaine Amendment. And the Blaine Amendment does not prohibit the use of public tax dollars going to private schools. What it prohibits is the use of public tax dollars going to sectarian schools, religious schools. And almost every state has this, for also for obvious reasons, uh, where some misinformed parties are trying to you know, add or misrepresent fact in the public discourse is that you're trying to say that the Supreme Court has ruled recently that we can have vouchers and all of these things because the Blaine Amendment is dead. And that's not what the Supreme Court said. has said. The Supreme Court has said through a handful of cases over the last five years is that if you are a state and you create a new program where you are using tax dollars and you are making those tax dollars general, that's, this is the key term, generally available to everyone and they can use it for private school, then you can't really discriminate against religious schools at that point. But Idaho does not have that program. Idaho does not have a program where everybody has access to money that can be used for private school tuition. There are small programs um, that are you know, unique and tailored, but we do not have a general program. So our Blaine Amendment is in good shape. And so um, I think those are two really important pieces of the puzzle. And the chairwoman of House Education Committee has our constitutional obligation taped on the back of our name cards so that we are always looking at the Constitution when we make decisions. Oh, that's awesome. It's very it awesome. It is cool. I like that. That's awesome. It's a good North Star. Mm -hmm. It is a good. I like that. Yes. Okay. So let's talk also something that started, I mean, we've been hearing for a while in Idaho is this funding formula. This is something that's been spoken about a lot. And when we talk about the funding formula, there you'll, people often hear the concepts of enrollment-based or attendance-based. Will you guys kind of talk about what the difference between those two and the impact because I think that there's a lot of value in understanding those. Sure. So the, there was an interim committee to look at the funding formula and how we're able to get money for students down to the you know LEA level to the different school districts. This isn't the first time they've done that. They've addressed the funding formula a few times um, in, in the past. But when we're talking about enrollment versus ADA, so enrollment is an amount you know, now amount of money that gets appropriated for students, um, but based on how many kids are actually enrolled in the school, in the school district. And so it changes your support unit calculations. So support unit is basically like your classroom size. And then they, you know, they are able to give um, full-time, you know, teacher, you know, appropriation for based on that support unit. So the higher your enrollment, the higher that number, the more teachers you get approved for funding for for that. So during the pandemic, the governor allowed enrollment because attendance was 
all over the place, right? During the pandemic, we were hybrid, we were remote, we were, you know, part-time, some went completely online, all, all of the things. And so for the last three years, school districts had enrollment funding, which helped enormously. So going back to average daily attendance, which is ADA, um, was a hit for schools. And I was reminded by an agency person that uh, he, he reminded me that during the pandemic, you know, the last three years where school districts were getting enrollment funding and using it for a variety of things, everything from, you know, staff to keep to keep programs open, um, to be able to address learning loss with students, um, support for families, et cetera. They had about half of their superintendents turnover. And so when going back to ADA funding, which takes, they take a couple temperature checks throughout the year to be able to determine what your average daily attendance is. And that could be, I mean, typically it's around 95%. So that would be 5% less than an enrollment-based funding. Um, Depending on the district, it could be lower. Post-pandemic, though, uh, we're seeing some problems across the districts, like Mountain Home, for instance. Post-pandemic, they were like in the 80s, mid-80s. Well, that's devastating for a school district to get funded on 85%, 86%. Um, Educators would say, you know, if I've got 28 kids enrolled in my classroom, I prep for 28 kids. I plan for 28 kids. And so, you know, and I think of even before pandemic, you know, being a teacher for 20 years, if I have a kid going out of town or if I have a kid who's um, the family staying at grandma because grandma's sick and they and I'm prepping work for them um, or more recently where we've had one to one devices, I'm bringing them in remotely. I can't count those kids as present. So that was parting that part of that funding formula discussion too is how we mark kids present when now there are so many different ways to reach children to reach kids you know with cooperation um, of the family. So I know they were looking at that, um, you know, trying to find a hybrid model to what that would look like. Also, a conversation in the funding formula discussion that over the summer and the fall and into this session was weighted formulas. So looking at subsets of populations that either require additional staff, um, additional training, um, specialized um, certifications. So looking at our special ed students. And, you know, and we've known for quite some time that special ed is underfunded across the state to the tune of over $60 million, just what it takes to serve our special, you know, special needs population. Another, and so they had the State Department has proposed a weighted formula for special education students and then also low-income students and then our multilingual students, our kiddos that are learning English. So those that proposal, you know, and there were lots of discussions and folks didn't get everything that they wanted, you know, that were at the table. It was a really large working group, almost too large. There were so many cooks in the kitchen that it was hard to, to, to come to consensus. But that that proposal, I know, will come from the State Department before our Joint Finance Committee. Um, so we'll we'll see. So she has, you know, uh, Superintendent Critchfield has proposed her um, 
her method for funding formula presenting she had synthesized different buckets of where the money will come in i know her proposal includes adding more discretionary funds for local you know school districts that they have a little more say about how they're using their funds for programs or curriculum or whatever else and i know that is um you know, in the in the school districts across the state that I talk to, they appreciate a little bit of discretion with how they use their operational funds because it gives them the flexibility to meet the needs of their community. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm listening to the discussion about bills and concepts and legislative ideas, and I think it's important. There's a couple of kind of phenomena that underlie the surface of all of these bills, which have been around since I've been in the legislature and will probably continue to persist. I think. And they're pretty impactful in the conversation, even when we don't realize that sometimes the first one is, you know, the fact that we were all students once. And so we have really strong opinions on learning and we all had a teacher once. And so we have really strong opinions on instruction. And I think a lot of us think we are experts when we're actually not. And I think that really hardens people's positions about the politics of edu public education because we all think we're experts when we might not actually be. And so we're less deferential to the people who are experts and who do this every day. The second one, and I thought of this when we were talking about school buildings and salmon, it's easy for people in my legislative district here to think that's salmon. That's far away. I don't know any of those people. I don't know any of those kids except for my family, friends, but you know, and I think this came up in a conversation with some of your chapter leaders this week you know, what happens to kids in salmon matters to all of us. It should matter to all of us because we are all interconnected. Um, you know, if a family doesn't have health insurance, they are much more inclined to send their kids to school sick. And that puts all of us at risk. That undermines everyone's ability to learn. It undermines the teacher's ability to instruct if they get sick. And so there is this level of connectivity I think we've forgotten about. And I always point people to one of my favorite books called Our Kids by Robert Putnam. And it does a really good job of explaining how a lot of our laws and constitutions and, and government infrastructure and church infrastructure was built around this idea of taking care of one another and how that has slowly unraveled and what the price is that we are paying for that unraveling. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you brought up this idea of, I mean, yeah, this um, the Idaho PTA got together for our advocacy day and you guys were there. And what was awesome about it was that our members got to hear from le the legislator. They got to hear from other, you know, stakeholders and education leaders on information that was pertinent to them. And one of the things that you are pointing out is that one of our members said, well, in my school district, if my kid is sick and they stay home in order to excuse that absence, I have to go get a doctor's note that myself as the mother is not good enough for that. And so then you tack up enough unexcused absences and then I've got to deal, you know, then I've got a problem and my child has a problem. We have to deal with the school district. And she kind of, you know, she brought that idea up and, and I just kind of thought, wow, you know, and that is on an attendance-based formula. Those, because of what's coming down from the state level to the districts, there's then pressure, right? That decision goes all the way down and the parents are the ones feeling that pressure to send their child to school when the kid really should be staying at home. And a lot of times, maybe it's just you know, a slight fever or something. And the parent thinks, well, maybe, maybe you should just go, you know, you've got things and I, I can't take you to the doctor. I, maybe I don't have health insurance, right? I mean, there's lots of different components along the way. And 
maybe that child would be better in 24 hours, right? But that child goes into a classroom and maybe the teacher gets sick and gets that gets a head cold and stuff and then is out for three days, right? And then it impacts, there's, you know, fiscal impacts because then you got to bring in a substitute teacher. And, and now that teacher not only is sick, but then has to do those lessons for that. And then it's spreading to other kids in the class. And I mean, I know personally as a parent, I've I I mean, I get it, you know, illnesses travel around in different components, but it's interesting because my husband's a physician, he sees sick people, but the people who are bringing illnesses into our home are my kids, because, you know, <laughs> it's not my husband who's seeing, um, and it's just been interesting. I feel like actually my kids have had more viruses as high schoolers in these last couple of years than they did when they were in elementary school and middle school. And I think some of it is that pressure to go and be there. And and so I think these enrollment and attendance-based conversations are really important to have. And it was it was interesting because after, I don't think you guys had come into the Lincoln Auditorium yet with the PTA, we took a little bit of a break and we have uh, we had three high schoolers at the event and they were over kind of talking to each other. I wasn't paying attention. One of them was my kid and I just kind of thought they're good. I got things I got to do over here. And and one of my board members came over to me and she said, do you see them over there? And I said, yes, yes. They're, and I'm thinking, Ugh. and she said, do you know what they're talking about? And I said, no, I, I haven't passed by. And she said, they're talking about what they just heard about attendance and enrollment based. Mm -hmm. And she said, it's so obvious to them that for them enrollment makes sense as they you know as the things that they were talking about and i just kind of thought you know what our our students care too our teenagers you know they sure. care too and they're aware and uh i just thought that that was really cool i loved that experience and then you guys came in and shared some more stuff and but these conversations are really important to be aware of and then i think for people to share with their legislators like share your voice idaho pta uh, their website has what's called voter voice and it allows people to go into onto one of their pages and just type in their zip code and then type in their address and all of their elected officials come up they can check a little box and then it just says email and it sets the email right up there and it just hits send and it sends it right off to them and i just think that those types of things are so important even just a this is how i I don't like this bill, right? I'm sure. I request that you vote no or I request that you vote yes because as you have both mentioned earlier, it's really important for our legislators to hear from us as people, as voters, yeah. you know, we're the Absolutely. ones that are impacted by all these things. And and I would say it's really important for particular types of legislators to hear from people. There are uh, you know a lot of people think that, you know, legislative politics is about left versus right and Democrats versus Republicans and in my experience the divide is between ideologues and true public servants, people who are willing to reach out to people they expect disagreement from to find out why, figure out why, make the bill better, try to understand versus people who have no interest in exposing their thought process or their ideas to potential opposition until they have to because they know that they might not have the best response to it. And so, you know, hiding ideas, hiding lines of reasoning is, is how they get their ideas um, down the line. And so when people reach out to people or when, when constituents and, and members of the public reach out to them, you know, it kind of breaks down that fourth wall. And, it, you know, I know you might think you want to hide your ideas and your reasoning, but, you know, I see you and I don't like it or I really love it. And I wish you would share it more and answer my call and call me and we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I have a friend and his dad served in the Idaho legislature decades ago or yeah, decades ago. And this was before the wings were added on with all of the different offices. Mm-hmm. So their office was in their at their desk in the house chamber. I mean, I think he was a member of the house and he, and then he was also there after the wings had been added on and they had, you know, their different offices and he said as a um, house member that it really changed the dynamic of the people within the Capitol because whereas to start, they were all sitting next to each other. They were opening their mail next to each other, you know, people with different ideology and they were conversing and having conversations. And he said, and then after that, we just all went to our offices and we weren't getting that shoulder rubbing that actually can be really beneficial in building bridges and having conversations mm-hmm. and all those different types of things. So what are, what do you two do to kind of work through that, you know, it's, it's a... It's a spatial separation, but it's a culture that, you know, is at the Capitol. What kinds of things do you guys do to build bridges with other legislators and different members um, that are at the Capitol? That's one thing I'm so grateful for, Chris's mentorship, you know, through being a new legislator, watching him and the relationships he cultivates and the friendships um, that he sustains and maintains. Chris is a master at remembering details about people's lives and what they're going through. I watch him every day um, dig into the personal with people and those he encounters, not not only legislators, but um, those who are down at the Capitol or in leadership or not. Um, and he cares deeply about what their experience is and what their voice um, is. And so, and as an educator, you know, for me, I approach a lot of things as I would as a teacher, where if we're going to work together, I need to get to know you. And so as I get to know folks and what their passions are and what, um, where they come from and what their values are, it helps me negotiate that space together of where can we find common, common ground. So there's, you know, Chris and I, I'd say we both have a a good hustle through the building that we don't live in our cubicles. We are out and about talking, you know, talking about policy, talking about bills, trying to get various, you know, perspectives. We jump back and forth across the street so we can talk to agencies and um, making sure that we are well informed and that there are multiple voices. But I, I have been so grateful for Chris's lead in that regard of how how you conduct yourself down in that building and remaining open to ideas and um, always inviting others to the table for that discussion. She, she is too kind. Um, uh, back to your point about offices, I, in December of 22, so after the 22 election and every other December, af, right at the month after in a legislative election, there's what's called an organization session. And that's when the parties will pick their leaders and we'll pick the speaker and we'll, everyone will get a committee assignments and office assignments. And during that org week, there is a, a two-day session for the people who just got elected and haven't even been sworn in yet. And every year they have a member of the sophomore class, two members of the sophomore class, a member of the majority and the minority come speak to the freshmen, just share your experience. And I was asked to speak to the freshmen my sophomore year. And I talked about this. I talked about the I was talking about the importance of relationships. And I was saying, you know, a hundred years ago, we all used to live in the same two hotels. We all used to eat in the same two dining rooms. We all used to work inside the same room. I mean, we work together all the time. And when you know people at that level, when you know about their kids and their grandkids and their ranches and their law practice and all of the things, it's hard to demonize them. It's hard to turn around and call them an SOB on the internet. 
Hmm. It's almost impossible because that just run. It's it's counter to what a good decent person would do. And now we all live in different places, eat in different places, work in different places, and the physical segregation is is exacerbating the intellectual segregation and our ability to work together as a team. So consistent with what Sonia mentioned, you know, I generally, you know, try to ask more than I declare. I try to listen more than I speak. And I think that that's, you know, everyone is different. You know, I am a member of a super minority, um, but I'm also a man. So I benefit from some of that. The general principles apply, though. It doesn't matter if you are in small town Idaho or the legislature, being a decent person, is the essence of it and that trust that you build with people really creates opportunities and i'm talking about trust-based relationships relationships that most of the time when you talk to the person you're not talking about politics and what you're talking about the things i just mentioned rather than having relationships you only try to activate when you need something those more transactional based Mm -hmm. relationships those don't feel good to me i don't think they work in the long run and so, you know, the real trust and foundational based relationships are really the key to, I think, being effective in the building. I agree. There was, um, it's the National Institute for Civil Discourse actually put out information, and I know they were sharing it around Idaho a couple, several years ago, this idea that one of the ways that we foster civility is simply by getting to know each other. That if we know their name or maybe a little bit about their background, that it actually adds to uh, the relationship and makes it so that when when we disagree, we're not going out and calling people names or you know getting frustrated with them. That we have a context that they're actually a real person. Right. It's not just a body, but it's a it's a person with a background and a family and all those different things. And so, I mean, I totally agree with what you get, with, with what you're both saying. And, so, and I w- I would say I think most Idahoans do too. I think that's an important point is that we we are not special. We are not outliers. Right. We are just demonstrating the values that our neighbors teach us and that we learned in school and we learned in college. I mean, this is just the way most Idahoans treat each other. I agree. Yeah, I've really, I've had some nice experience. I mean, I love living in Idaho. That's fantastic. Um, Okay, I wanted to, before we kind of like wrap up here, two things. One, I wanted to kind of talk about, because one of the things that we see in bills a lot, especially around education, um, or things that are going to impact libraries or, you know, safety, are when it's appropriate for the state to come in and make laws, and when when it's more beneficial for local school districts or local community to make those designations. So, what are your experiences around those two topics when you're working to decide or thinking about? And if you want to give some examples about things that are happening right now, you know, please do that. But that's something that I think we talk about a lot in Idaho. Sure. I mean, anytime we can sustain local control, we want to do that. I think where policy, you know, or a new bill can be effective is if it wants to assist local control, if we're talking about schools, do something better or assist with a conversation around policy that they may want to have in place. If we're looking at libraries, that can, you know, continues to be a, a theme every legislative session. When the state comes in and says exactly what they have to do and, you know, imposes um, manufactured definitions of obscenity or um, somebody else's value system as a marker for how to judge books and people's ability to read that that seems like state and government overreach uh, instead of empowering local communities from libraries to school districts to be able to have policy 
that is vetted and fair and make sure that there is a process in place for people to feel heard um, and to even have an appeal process. That seems important to me. Those systems seem helpful at the local level. But what we see um, over and over is particular pieces of legislation that impose um, an agenda or um, uh, maybe, you know, something that they're perceiving that can can help but ends up being a policy nightmare. And so when when we put ourselves in a, a position of seeking to understand how this will impact um, the local community or how it impacts a particular library, you know, a rural library that's a one-house library or how it's going to impact a school district that may not be equipped to meet what a new bill is going to impose. I think it gives, I know it gives Chris and I pause of, you know, what the ramifications are of allowing bills like that through. You know, the library bill um, was, you know, resurfaced this year and was pulled back from the House floor back into committee, which, you know, was surprising for a lot of us, but they're going to look at it again and see if there's a collaboration possible to be able to have something that, you know, doesn't end up getting deemed unconstitutional. Um, so we're, we're looking at that. Um, an upcoming bill that will be on the House floor this next week is the concealed carry guns in schools. And there's a good example of where something is a state you know, it'll be a state policy shoved into local government without any support for how you do that correctly, um, supersedes the authority of a local district to be able to design what is best for their community with community buy-in, with parents, stakeholders at the table. That's a good example of um, government overreach and something we'll try very hard to stop. In, you know, and you've probably already learned this in your graduate studies, um, but in public administration and policy academics, there's a, a model of public policymaking called the heuristics model of public policymaking. And it's, it's so academic, it's not the way it really works. But I've found myself kind of increasingly relying on it. The heuristics model starts with, you know, what is the problem? What are our options for addressing the problem? Which of these options do we like? let's implement the option then let's evaluate how implementation went and feedback any corrections we can that's generally the theoretically that's how it's supposed to go that's not generally how it goes but i tend to find myself relying on that model when bills come in front of me i try to f ask a lot you know what is the problem we're trying to fix and so to your question about you know the, the, why is the state getting involved here or there i try to bring it back to the question of what's the problem we're trying to solve so on the one hand Let's take school facilities. The bond mechanism and the supermajority requirement that we have in place is creating an environment where local districts are not able to meet their own needs. They're, they cannot take care of themselves for market reasons, because of market failures, market forces. Um, you know, some school districts just don't have much bondable property value. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that they cannot address their own needs. And since we are all Idahoans, that seems to me to be an opportunity for the state to say, how can we help? We don't need to solve the whole problem, but there's, is there anything we can do to help? So it makes sense for me that the state would get involved in addressing school facilities. On the other hand, when someone comes and says, you know, librarians are handing out pornography to kids, 
well, then we need to ask, well, that's what's show us this is if that's true, that's a problem. But when you start peeling back the layers of that onion, what you will find is they're not, they're not handing out hustlers at the front door of the library. And when you dig even further, what you will see is that, and you know, everyone will say, we got to keep pornography out of, you know, the hands of kids. And I agree, but it raises my suspicions when a bill comes forward and there's no definition of pornography. So what are we really doing here? Are we, is this just an ideological driven attempt to reinforce a false narrative that, that there's pornography everywhere? Or is there really a problem and the state should get involved? And so I try to follow the, you know, the heuristics model of, of policy making when I'm trying to determine whether there's a legitimate reason for uh, the state to get involved. But in my experience, when it comes to public education, the local districts do a pretty darn good job mm-hmm. with what they have. And when they need help, they'll ask for it. And when they don't ask for help, we probably shouldn't be offering it. Oh, I really like that. Yeah, I really <laughs> like that, especially, yeah. I mean, I'm just even thinking about my time as a school board member. And I really felt like our board had a really good pulse on what was going on in our community. I mean, I acknowledge that not all school boards have that pulse. I think that some of them, you know, don't. And that that's an opportunity and we've seen it around the state for the local community to replace those school board members with people who do have a good uh, understanding of what the community values and what they want in their local areas. Um, so kind of finally, like, are there any, are there any topics like that are, you know, that are in the legislature that you're going to kind of be watching for this session further or things that like are important to you that you thought, you know what, this is really valuable. I want to make sure that this gets brought up today. I mean, subjects we've talked about, you know, so school facilities, that's going to be important. You know, the governor's proposal sort of sets the stage about what his priorities are. So we always watch what those bills will be and um, how we can support them if they're, you know, um, good for Idaho, which school facilities is a need, as Chris was saying, they school districts have been asking for help. And so this will um, be an important piece of legislation to see through. Vouchers continues to be a watch and a top priority for me and for Chris as well, just because we know what it means once you let that system into uh, into Idaho. We've watched other states, you know, it, it bleed their general fund. And so that's really important. Um, you know, there's also really important topics not related to education, but Chris referenced earlier, you know, mandatory minimum for fentanyl. That would is a big deal. We had hundreds of people in the hallways and in the committee rooms. And so that will be landing on the floor this next week as well. And that concerns a lot of Idahoans. So whatever the topic is, that's going, you know, going through committees and through bills, we, you know, try to, you know, stand sentinel for those things that does the work of Idaho and involves stakeholders and make sure we're actually solving real problems and not promoting ideologue agendas. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, the, the two there's two funds that I think the public should pay closer attention to. One is called the legislative defense or the legislative no, it's called the legislative defense fund and the other one is called the constitutional defense fund. And these are two funds that have increasingly gotten bigger. And they are designed to defend the laws we pass in court against constitutional challenges. And one of the reasons that I think the public should pay closer attention to them is because what is happening is as ideologues capture our state government and use state government to push ideological agendas, we are all paying for those experiments. Mm -hmm. It is not cheap 
to appeal a decision all the way through the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Each of these cases, and I think we've lost every single one that we've had to pay out of the Constitutional Legal Defense Fund. Don't quote me on that. Certainly the Constitutional Defense Fund. I don't think we've ever you know, received any money into that fund from the opposing counsel. I think we've always lost. And we usually have to pay about a quarter million dollars. That's taxpayer money. And this is a conservative state. I'm a military veteran. I try to run the state budget like I run my household budget. And that's responsibly and just below my means. And I think using these funds as essentially slush funds to engage in constitutional experiments is not something that a limited, small, focused, disciplined government should be doing. So I, I would also add that people should be paying, paying attention to those two funds and how much money is going into them and, and how it's going out. And where can they pay it? Like, how do they pay attention to those? It requires um, a lot of attention to detail because, you know, these are not funds that we put right at the top of the legislative webpage. We don't want people going and looking at them. You actually would have to dig into the budget, the state's budget book pretty deeply. Uh, and when, you know, the I think it's the board of examiners is who has to authorize. So out of the Constitutional Defense Fund, I think it's the Board of Examiners that authorizes those expenditures and it's Senate and House le leadership, majority leadership that authorizes payments out of the Legislative Defense Fund. Uh, you'd have to go to the LSO Budget Office and look, open up, you know, the probably thousand page PDF to go find out how much money is in there. But what you would see if you looked is you would see a fund that had a few million dollars in it and over a couple of years that fund paid out losing cases for bill, bad bills that we passed. And then the legislature has to appropriate and put millions of dollars back into it. And these, you know, it seems like, you know, in the, in the scheme of a six, seven billion dollar budget, three, four million dollars might not seem like much, but that adds up. And when you're talking three million here, three million there, you know, you're talking new school buildings and you're talking teacher raises and you're, we just need to be a little bit more responsible in how we spend our money and why. And I think those two funds are really nice illustrations of um, one of the challenges I think we face right now. And is that the office, uh, is that the attorney general's office that's using those funds? Who's using those funds? Usually the, that money gets sent to private attorneys. Mm. So for example, there was a law that, that the legislature passed before I got there. It, the, the, colloquial term for it was the ag-gag bill, yeah. but it was essentially a law that said if you are on a licensed dairy farm, you cannot take unauthorized photos and video and sound audio files. And we don't have to get into the background of it, but um, a firm sued. Uh, some people withstanding sued on First Amendment free speech grounds, and it went all the way to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the state lost. And we had to pay a quarter million dollars to that law firm. And these are pretty progressive and liberal law firms. And I think if most Idahoans knew that these two funds were essentially funding yeah. liberal progressive law firms, they would want to rein them in pretty quickly. Um, but it happens pretty regularly. I mean, there's bills right now that are in this process and that right. are probably going to have to be paid out of the Constitutional right. Legislative Defense Fund. Bathroom bill from last session. And now what, it's now held up in court. And what would, what would someone do? What could they do? Who do they voice their their feelings to? Who do they? Is it someone that they vote for that makes those decisions? Does that it, make sense? At this point, it would be JFAC, the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committees. They are in the process of setting all of these budgets. They're making decisions about how much money should go into the, these funds. Last year, I think we put a couple years worth of amount of money in it, so they might not ask for an appropriation this year. 
um, but the, the Joint Finance and Appropriations Committee is the group of people who takes the first initial look at how much money is in it, how's it being spent, is this a good use of taxpayer dollars, and then they will propose to the whole legislature, this is how much money we should put in it. And preemptively looking at the bills that we know are going to end us up in court, right? Where you see the bills come through and you're like, this is a nightmare waiting to happen. This will, if it goes all the way through, we'll just end up with, you know, a large court bill from it. And and I don't know, I'm speculating, and maybe Chris, I wonder if that was a part of the reason the library bill was pulled back for a remix, because the way it was written, we would definitely have ended up with... Um, in, in court over the definition of obscenity and so and people's you know first amendment rights as well so just get in front of those bills that we know are not meant to do the the work of idaho but meant to legislate someone's ideology yeah i really like that point i hadn't thought of that that like gosh you know some of these bills are going to end up in court and who's paying for that? It's taxpayers. And so, yeah. right, I mean, there might be some people who think, oh, I really think that that's really valuable. I think pe there shouldn't be those kinds of, if we're looking at books, there shouldn't be those kinds of, you know, books in the libraries. But if that's a personal opinion and if it's not a public right. thing and that is something that's going to end up in court, then it's not a good idea for Idaho in general. Right. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a really good point. And um, important point to do the work to make the bill better. Talk with folks who don't agree with your bill and see where, you know, the compromise lies. Talk to agencies. Talk to folks that it impacts. Make it a better bill mm -hmm. so we don't end up in court. Agreed. Okay, I always end my conversations with takeaways. And you guys are actually the first. This is the first time I've had two guests at one time. Yes. This is like first. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the takeaway is just kind of something that you're taking taking away from the conversation as listeners. Sometimes, you know, you hear all these things and they think, what are the main, you know, what are the main points? And so since there's three of us, I thought it'd be great if we did three. I usually just do two. So if we do, you know, we'll do three. Can you go first? I will go first. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I usually ask me to go first. Um, okay. So the thing that I'm taking away from the conversation is that it's, there are resources out there for us as citizens to be um, for us to access that are easy to access so that we can just follow along and watch. And when we decide, if we decide that we want to get involved, we can. Chris, you've got a website, uh, ChrisForIdaho.com. Sonia, you've got SoniaGallabies.com. Idaho PTA has one, but you guys are also on social media and you can, you know, watch these things. One of the things that I do, uh, because I'm a full-time student, I'm the president of Idaho PTA, I've got two podcasts. I mean, there's just a lot, I'm just four kids. I just feel like there's so many people in Idaho who have so many amazing things going on in their lives and they don't have time to go down to the Capitol and watch something live in person. And so I oftentimes when I remember, we'll just watch that live stream, that there are things that are available for us to access. And it's so important for us to access them because this is our state. These are our communities. These are our kids. This is our future. And it's so important for us to be a part of that. That's my takeaway. It doesn't have to be anything profound, by the way. Just something, maybe Thank a goodness. thought, felt, whatever. <laughs> I'll go. I was, you know, as I was throughout this conversation and thinking about all the voices around Idaho that are often missing in the conversation, whether if it's at the genesis of a bill or, you know, as it's being constructed or even in hearings and how important it is that, you know, legislators and um folks that care deeply about the impact of policy that we work 
to get voices that are often marginalized or underrepresented down at the state house there. And so I've been thinking about particularly families. And I know Idaho PTA, you know, you represent families and a lot of a lot of moms, you know, that care deeply about education and just thinking about how we can elevate and maximize those voices because they are they're the heart of Idaho and they often have to pick up the pieces or work to mitigate impact of policy in their local communities or in their local schools. So I'm my takeaway is how can we work to get the rural voices, the maybe the quiet background voices that are the majority of Idahoans into that space that can help inform us and be more thoughtful legislators. I before you go, Chris, I just want to comment on your Sonia because it's so it feels so timely mm-hmm. that when I presented in front of the Senate Ed Committee uh, for as the president of Idaho PTA, um, I got a couple of questions, but the first thing I got was a comment, and it was um, I can't remember which senator she was. As I look at the seat chair, she's all the way to the right, um, but she said I she said Alexis, I just want to give you a thought, and she told me about um, a student in Southeast Idaho who didn't have an experience, like who had never had a school dance in his area because he didn't have parents that were in that area who you know to help put that on, and someone came in and and put on something, and so she said you know, it'd be so great if Idaho PTA could reach out and try to find people in that community, you know, just in these rural areas. And I loved what she had to say. And I thanked her for her, you know, her, her thought and that actually, I'm totally on the same page with her that I have been speaking with parents in Eastern Idaho. And just recently, I spoke with one and she gave me several names of people who are not connected to the PTA, which is like the oldest and largest child advocacy group in the state of Idaho um, that's driven by parents and and teachers. And mm-hmm. and so I said, you know, there's not PTAs over in that area that I'll, over the years, they went from PTAs to PTOs, and then oftentimes they just kind of disappear into the, you know, in the sunset, and we don't see them and we don't hear from them. And what I'm hearing from those parents over there is that they feel like their voices aren't being heard. And we are, you know, as an association, we are reaching out to them. And so your comment is so timely because I think people do feel that way. Mm-hmm. And it's so important for people who are in positions of power who have that ability to bring them in that we do that and because their voices are so essential so thank you for that i love that thank you mine is not is far less consequential i think and and insightful than both of yours Um, but i think i'm realizing that i might be a budget hawk which is not how (laughs) i've ever described myself you know we talked about the constitutional and legislative defense funds but you know i film my monday morning ledge preview on fridays usually and so I filmed it yesterday, and on Monday morning on the House floor, we'll be debating the Guns and Schools Bill, House Bill 415. And there's all kinds of things you could say about it, but the thing that I found myself saying the most was, you know, more guns equals more risk. And if you have more risk, you need more insurance. And since we all pay for our school district's insurance through our property taxes, this bill's going to raise our taxes. And I think I'm a budget hawk. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Very sensible. Yes, very, very, very sensible. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today with the conversation. I'm really um, excited for people to to hear this, and I really appreciate your time and what you do, and really value what you do in in serving the state of Idaho. Thank you. Oh, thank you for all you do. 
And that's a wrap on today's episode of Our Kids, Our Schools. Your contributions are vital in this shared journey towards a thriving school community. So let's keep this conversation going on my Instagram page at the.alexis.morgan. Share your insights, suggestions, and experiences. Follow the podcast so you never miss empowering discussions and insightful resources. And always remember, keep learning, keep questioning, and together, let's make a difference. 